Ladies, thank you so much for leading us and leaving us. So go home to your babies. You ain't going to miss nothing. I ain't saying nothing. Courtney, the Lord is with you, though, because you stand. So <laughs> the spirit is departing. It's a privilege, as always, to be with the rock, even though right now it's only a couple of pebbles. But Lord willing, as we will discuss this Wednesday, we will talk with that, about what that looks like. Well, if you're like me, the year 2020, it seems like we've been in 2020 for 20 years. And this is only the month of June. So we got a long way to go. And the way things look, we might not have even seen the worst ever yet. For me personally, one of the benefits of talking to other churches and other leaders around the country is I'm getting a sense of what people are saying, what people are struggling with, along with our church. I'm, I'm able to give some perspective and test my ideas, my thoughts, what I think the Lord is doing. I'm able to put those out there with real people in real time, not just Facebook posts and read comments, but interactions with people and leaders in different parts of the country and I've been able to test what I'm thinking and seeing and even sitting among people who I know, agreeing to sit with people who I know would primarily disagree with my perspective. See, I have a hashtag entitled Stay Balanced, and that's what I try to do. And so I've been able to test what I think and what I'm saying, and it's been refreshing for me to be an encouragement to people outside of our church. It's been refreshing to me to learn from others and hear different perspectives and see what's happening. How are people processing this, even in different regions of the country? How are other pastors thinking through this? And so as I've done that and have done quite a bit of those and have a few more coming up, uh, one of them will be with some heavyweight theologians that we definitely disagree so it will be interesting to have that particular conversation, Zoom meeting, uh, that's supposed to happen shortly. If anyone is interested, when I get the details, I'll let you know, but I'm sure it will be messy. But it won't be because of me, because hopefully it won't be, because I've heard a lot of arguments. I've been doing these things the last couple of weeks, and I believe I'm, I'm, I'm okay with where I'm at and how I'm processing this. And so this morning, I want to share with you some of that, and then I plan to share more in, in a little bit more specific detail next Sunday. We're going to start in a passage. Our primary verses today will be 1 Timothy chapter 6, at the end of a letter Paul is writing to Timothy. Paul has only written four letters. All, of all, the Paul, all the letters that Paul wrote, four of them were to individuals, two to the same person, Timothy, first and second Timothy. He wrote, he wrote one to Titus, and he wrote one to Philemon. And this is the end of his first letter to Timothy, which we call a pastoral epistle. And he says this, beginning in verse 20. He says, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you 
avoiding irreverent and empty speech and contradictions from what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some people have departed from the faith. Grace be with you all. This is our passage this morning. One of the things I like about Paul's writing, and particularly this letter, is that Paul kind of bookends his letter. He kind of starts it with the same thing and ends it with the same thing. And then at times he peppers in between some of the same things. So when you get to the end, you realize it's a summation of everything you've read thus far. For example, look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. It should be on your screen. And he says this, talking to Timothy, as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, Remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. So you see he's already attacking from the outset this reality. Now, the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and turned aside to fruitless discussion. You know, it's funny, Paul could, could be alive today and write that, and it would be relevant. And he says this in verse 7, they want to be teachers of, the, teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they are saying or what they are insisting on. But we know that the law is good, provided one uses it legitimately. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers for the sexually immoral and homosexuals, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which was entrusted to me. So you hear similar language as Paul is discussing one about false doctrines and things that people depart from the faith on and that the gospel has been entrusted to him, And you see similar language in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2, where he gets more specific about what it is he's actually concerned about. And he says, now the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. So he's laying out, he's peppering throughout this letter the very concerns that he sees when he's talking to this young pastor, Timothy, that he discipled, that traveled with him in mission. And so when we get to 1 Timothy 6, his last words of this letter, it makes sense because he's been saying this the whole time throughout the letter, explicitly explaining what his concern is for Timothy. He begins these last two verses highlighting Timothy's name. Now, the insertion of his name here is specific. It's to grab Timothy's attention. Paul could have easily read the names. Could, he could have not said his name and communicated the same truth. In fact, the two verses prior to verse 20 give no indication that Paul needed to insert his name. Verse 18, he says, instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. And he could have said in verse 20, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding, and there would have been no issue for us. We would have read it as if it was meant to be. But he inserts the name Timothy. This is the third time that he does that in this letter. 
in verse one, in chapter one, verse two, he does this so that Timothy can feel his love as he writes the letter and he reminds Timothy of his love for him. The second time Paul mentions Timothy's name is in, is in chapter one, verse 18. This is where he starts to lay out the foundation of his letter and he wants Timothy to hear his concern. And in this last portion, which is our verse today, when he says the word Timothy, he wants Timothy to listen carefully, to remember what it is he's saying. So it's almost as if him saying, Timothy, grabbing his attention again. I know when I was a kid, there were certain times where I could tell by how much trouble I was in by the way my mom would say my name. There were certain tones and phrases, and I, I could tell I was in trouble. Or if my mom had to come to school because I got in trouble, I could tell by how much trouble I got in by the way she said my name in front of the teachers. My mom has nicknamed me Cease, and that's the name that she calls me. has been called that my whole life. But when I was in front of the teachers, she would say, Curtis, get your things, let's go. I'm in trouble. Or if she would yell my name a particular way, I was in trouble. When your name is inserted, it grabs your attention. And this is a letter where Timothy's name is inserted at the end of this letter to grab his attention because Paul wants him to listen carefully to what he has to say as he's summing up his concern at the end of this letter. And the first thing he says after this is guard what has been and trusted to you. Now, guard, all of us know what that means. It means to, well, depending on the context, it could mean play defense at sports. But in this context, it means to watch, to protect, to look out for. He's saying guard, guard, watch, protect, look out for. And I even think you could say defend in this context. Guard, look out for, watch, pay attention to. He wants you to guard it. Why? Because you can lose it. You can lose it. He says, guard. And then he says, what has been entrusted to you. The language of this is amazing because earlier in chapter one, Paul said the gospel that was entrusted to me talking about Paul. And then he tells Timothy here, the gospel that has been entrusted to you. It's sort of a deposit. The word in the original language is the form of a deposit. This is a beautiful word. It's a beautiful picture because in 1 Corinthians 6.20, you get this image where Paul, the same author, is saying this to the Corinthians. He says, you were bought at a price, so glorify God with your body. So here, God is saying, you were bought at a price. It's all a financial transaction. You were bought at a price, and now you guard the deposit. So Christ died on the cross. That was the price he paid, and now he's giving you the deposit of which you are now responsible for. It's almost as if Paul is, is saying Timothy is like a brink security guard. If you've seen them come to the bank and they walk in and they take deposits and they have guns and there's usually a few of them. Why? Because they know at any given moment someone is trying to rob them and take the money and they signed up for that. They're given weapons and sometimes may lose their lives for this purpose. It's going into the bank and to either bring a deposit or to take a deposit. Either way, that security guard that is holding that bag and those who are with them in the car are guarding that deposit. 
Well, Paul is saying the same thing here, but this blank is a blood bank. It's a blood bank. And Timothy is told to guard the deposit that purchased your salvation. Guard the truth of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the ways he tells Timothy to guard it is the next phrase. How do you guard it, Timothy? How do you guard this deposit? He says, by avoiding irreverent and empty speech and contradictions from what is falsely called knowledge. This is a packed statement. So this avoiding is the opposite of guarding. So you guard the deposit, but avoid that. So I'm going to protect, defend, and look out for, but I'm going to stay away from that. I don't want to guard that deposit. Avoiding is the opposite of guarding. And what is he avoiding? Irreverent and empty speech. Irreverent just means profane. You know, as believers, we think of reverence as a, as a, a righteous fear and a respect and an admiration for God, right? This is a, when we talk about fear of the Lord, we're not talking about being afraid of the Lord. We're talking about a, a respect and a reverence that this is, I want to obey the Lord. Many of our children are like that until they get to be teenagers, as many say. He said that there's irreverent and empty speech. So this would be profane, worldly. This is the kind of speech that violates the sacred character of people. He's saying, avoid that. Avoid irreverent talk, which is just foolishness. Foolish talk. It's irrelevant. This is the kind of thing he's referring to in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, about deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. In the context of this, this is what Paul is warning him. Some theologians think he's talking about Gnosticism, which is sort of a, a form of sort of a secret spirituality where you get these secret messages from the spirit and you're not this enlightened theology that you don't if you don't have this enlightened spirituality you're not a believer and only a few people have it and it's called Gnosticism and it's what many think first John was writing against and they think Paul was talking against here and that could be the case but either way whatever it is it's irreverent and empty speech and it's a contradiction which just means a statement that is necessarily false it's a contradiction he said these are falsely called knowledge. Now, again, we don't know exactly what it is he's referring to in the context, but we know at least this. It has to do with what it means to follow God intellectually or morally. How do we know this? Because it's teaching of demons and some people have departed from the faith. They've departed from the faith. So somehow, whatever this knowledge is, this, this contradiction, this irreverent speech or irreverent babble, maybe your, your verse is actually like irreverent babble, to be honest, but irreverent speech and this contradictory speech, whatever it is, some people have departed from the faith. So somehow it's connected to following God intellectually and or morally that people said, you know what, I'm no longer doing that. I'm departing from the faith. And that's what he gets at in verse 21. He says, by professing it, some people have departed from the faith. 
Grace be with you all. This profession is to make an open and, and free declaration. Professing this. It's, uh, it's basically saying, I stand with this. I believe in this. This is who I am. This is what I identify with. He says, by professing it, by proclaiming this, he says, some people have departed from the faith. Whatever it is, at the very least, it is believed to be able to accomplish something that God cannot and God's word cannot because some people depart from the faith as a result of it. This is a warning. And the reason why it needs to be taken seriously today is because when Paul wrote this, this was close to when Jesus was alive. This is close. So if people are already departing from the faith close to when Jesus was alive, close to when they could see all these miracles, close to when people knew he was alive, that saw him, that watched him perform miracles, that may have eaten some of the food that he, that he fed 5,000 people with. These are people that may have interacted with his life. These are people that have seen Paul do supernatural miracles. And even with all of that, they're still departing from the faith. If people close to Jesus can do that, then think about people 2,000 years away what that means for us. If these people can depart from the faith, how easier is it for us who are so far removed from that? I'll let you fill in, finish the sentence. He says, grace be with you all. This is both a declaration and a deterrent. It's a declaration. It's the right declaration. Grace Grace is connected to Jesus Christ, not to what you say before you eat food, but the food, the spiritual food that you eat. This grace is connected to faith in Jesus Christ. It is a declaration to remember, but it's also a deterrent because the grace of God will keep us, will keep Timothy from following the rest who have departed from the faith. It is important also to consider that the fact that he's warning Timothy of this means he was concerned that it's Timothy could also follow suit. So no one is exempt. No one is exempt. So that's the passage in context for Timothy. So now we're going to do something that we call on the streets when you, after you play the game and you finish it. Let's run this back. Now we're going to run this back and relook at this passage again from the standpoint of how we should think about this today. So this was the context for Timothy. And now let's run this back. Let's go through this again and look at what does this mean for us today? Beginning in verse 20, instead of Timothy, place your name right there. Whoever you are, place your name here. Don't read it as Timothy, read it as your name, and see this as God's word talking directly to you because you and I are capable of the very thing that he is warning Timothy about, he's also warning us about. So remove Timothy's name and place your name right there. And here's what God is saying to you. Guard what has been 
entrusted to you. Guard what has been entrusted to you. What does that mean for us? Well, we know it's the gospel. We know it's faith in Jesus. We know it's salvation. But what's been entrusted to us is the love of God. And that love of God produces a love for God. And that love for God produces a love for others. And that love for others is real even if we're not loved by others. This is what the gospel is in application. This is who we are. The love of God has produced a love for God. And that love for God produces a love, by, a love for others, even if we're not loved by others. You see, for believers, the gospel is just not some good news. The gospel is not about a belief in some good news. It's actually a responsibility to a good God. See, before we are saved, when we first hear the gospel, it's good news. It's good news when we hear it, but it becomes a responsibility once we believe it. You see, I can't guard anything unless, I, unless I've already accepted it. I can't guard anything unless I've already have it. I can't guard anything unless it's been given to me. So initially, yes, it's good news. But after we believe it, it becomes a responsibility, not just a belief. And he's saying, put your name there. My name is there. Guard what has been entrusted to you. This word entrusted is significant. God is saying, I am trusting you with the eternal message of salvation. And you guard it and protect it in this life because you can lose it. And he warns us of what to do to guard it. He gives us some strategy. He says, avoiding irreverent and empty speech and contradictions from what is falsely called knowledge. And herein lies the cultural context we find ourselves in today. This irreverent and empty speech, this profane and foolish talk, this is the functional rhetoric of our day from believers. Just let me qualify this for a moment. Everything I say from here on out, unless I specifically name someone or people or organization, is going to be talking about believers. This is the stuff I see in believers. Don't think about unbelievers. I'm talking about believers here. And it's, it's fascinating to me. Sometimes it's like, it seems like people think that like we've been living a certain way and then, and then all of a sudden the last couple of years, all this stuff is just happening. Like everything that we're seeing right now is the product of the last three to four years or the last two to four years, or as a product of, of the president's tweets, or this organization's media uh, perspective. 
Like we're just living in this neutral world, and in these last couple of years, all that we're seeing is the results of that. No, sisters and brothers, no. History has consequences, and we are living in light of those consequences, both recent, both recent and both past. We are living in a culture where irreverent and empty speech and contradictions is becoming commonplace among those who profess to be Christians. And sadly, sadly, the, the, what's falsely called knowledge is what I think today is called politics. It's seeing things through a lens that's political more than biblical. What we are seeing now is a tale between, it's a battle between two gospels. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about we inherited a theological gospel versus a biblical gospel. And I said theological meant the study of God in relation to religion, in particular Christianity, and biblical meant what the Bible actually commands. And I stand by that. But I want to double down on this particular definition. I want to change the actual word because what we inherited is more of a theopolitical gospel. Theolitical. It's a theopolitical gospel when we're supposed to live the biblical gospel. It's politics versus politics. This is what's happening in the culture among believers. What is the theolitical, the theopolitical gospel? It acknowledges God as connected to the religious framework, which for us is Christianity, but it uses God to justify political leanings, like a manifest destiny. You see this in stuff like the Pledge of Allegiance. I remember as a kid, we used to stand up, put our hands over our chest and say, Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Every morning we said this in school. This, this God and the country flag. And the church is a theopolitical entity is what has happened historically. But here's the problem. You see, the ethics of politics is loyalty. Politics is about loyalty. It's about loyalty. So a theolitical gospel is primarily about loyalty. It's about loyalty. The ethic of politics is loyalty. Its philosophy is either or. And its strategy is to dismiss and dismantle those who are not loyal to its doctrine. But that's not the real gospel. It's not the real gospel. But this is the theopolitical gospel that we find ourselves in, and this is how a lot of believers are filtering everything that's happening from the standpoint. So all of this is about who, what political party you stand with, and everything, no matter what you say, no matter what color you are, it's not even black and white anymore, it's ideological, it's political, it's theopolitical versus biblical, and you find yourself communicating things and doing things that are connected to some filter that is based on a political sense, even if you're 
you're not directly affiliated. You're finding yourself fighting with what to believe and to identify with conservatives and this conservative. And I, I'm a progressive and I'm a liberal and I think it's this and then all these clashes. And I see godly people all over the country fighting over with each other, your own brother, over political leanings and your understanding of things because it's a theopolitical gospel where its ethic is loyalty, its philosophy is either or. And a strategy is to dismantle and dismiss those who are not loyal to the theopolitical doctrine. But this is not a real gospel. And yes, there are other gospels. And in, in Galatians 1, 6 through 8, here's what Paul says. He says, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by grace, by the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a different gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. We are living in a robust theolitical gospel. The biblical gospel acknowledges Jesus as Lord. It might participate in politics, but it recognizes that the kingdom is not of this world. And the ethic of the biblical gospel is love. It's love. The philosophy of the biblical gospel is reconciliation. 1 Timothy 2 Five and six. Here's the here's the biblical gospels. Philosophy. For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity. The man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is the proper time. The philosophy of the biblical gospel is reconciliation. Not dismantling and dismissing. The ethic is love. And the strategy is mission. It's mission. It's not attacking. It's mission. It's not either or. Oftentimes it's and. Both of these things are true on some level. So the question is, what gospel do your actions say you believe? What gospel do your posts say you believe? What gospel does your time consumption say you believe? In verse 21, he says this to us by professing it. Some people have departed from the faith. Departed from the faith is a process. It's a process. You see, I believe, and I'm applying it to this context, to this idea of a theopolitical, theolitical gospel. See, a theolitical gospel doesn't have time for things like praying and reading, because that's not enough. 
The theological gospel doesn't want you to talk about God as sovereign right now. That's not enough. The theological gospel acts as if everything that's happening right now is the result of some political party. And if we don't do something now, then that political party is going to advance and, and infect the whole world as if God isn't sovereign and isn't allowing everything that's happening right now. Oh, let's not have a selective sovereignty. Let's not be selective with our sovereignty. See, departing from the faith is a process. And it starts with things like this. Biblical commands are kind of cliche. And you know how this is true? You ever had to talk to someone to try to encourage someone? And you even qualify, listen, I know this is kind of cliche, but you ever had to tell someone that? Because you suspect that saying we got to pray, it's just, that's not going to do it. Now, I'm not saying we don't take more action than pray. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is we don't take action and not pray. See, the theopolitical gospel doesn't have patience for the biblical gospel. Because the the theopolitical gospel is about imposition, not mission. It's about imposing on you what you ought to believe in order to be legitimate, which is about loyalty. So if I disagree with your post, then I'm either a racist or I'm a cultural Marxist. Newsflash, I'm a Christian. And I have every right to believe what I want to believe, especially if it's not inconsistent with the scriptures. Cultural Marxist isn't in the Bible. I love that people say, oh, these people are following this these, these social, social, socialism and all this stuff, and then all the terms you use to describe them are cultural Marxist terms. They're socialistic terms. Hilarious to me. Where is the Bible? When you post Kansas, Candace Owens's and say thoughts, where is the Bible that says this is why you think all lives matter or why you think black lives matter? Where's the Bible at? Mission has become imposition. Don't have the patience. Don't have the patience for the biblical gospel. And this connects all to what we see happening today. Among believers, this is not biblical. This is theopolitical. Now, as a believer, as a believer, I 100% support the restraining of evil. I don't care if it's mandated by the church or if some non-Christian secular organization does it. I support the restraining of evil in any capacity because believers are people of righteousness. I, I support the restraining of evil. In fact, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3, it says this. First of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. Listen to that. Petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. For everyone. Verse 2, for kings, presidents, politicians, and all those who were in authority, police officers too, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Paul 
Paul was like, hey, I want to have a chill life, tranquil, calm. When my kids were babies, before, before they told us that because of my son's um, autism, they told us we can't speak in two languages. So we had to only speak in English. And when my kids were babies, or toddlers, and they'd be upset, we were still doing, I was doing Spanish and English. And whenever they get upset, I would be like this, tranquilo, tranquilo, mijo. I'd be like, mama, tranquilo. And that means calm down, calm down. I know my Hispanic brothers, this is like, Kirk got a good accent. I know, I'm married to, married to one. I love it. He says, tranquil. So I, 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 am, I support the restraining of evil. Romans 13 says this, 1 through 5. It says, let everyone, we'll get to Romans again. I know, I'm sorry. I know, I know. I, pro, I, I promise the Lord willing as God is my witness, we will get back to Romans one day. It says this, let everyone submit to the governing authorities since there is no authority except from God. Listen, submit to the governing authorities and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. See, I want the restraining of evil. I want to submit to the government's authority to restrain evil when it's real evil. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. It does not, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is God's servant, an avenger, that brings wrath on the ones who do wrong. Therefore, you must submit. So, so even God's institution whether it's sometimes unjust, which is true, but in, in essence, its intention is to restrain evil. So I am for restraining evil, and if I can have a tranquilo life, I want that. But there are some problems that I'm seeing arise in the theopolitical gospel world that we live in. It's too political. It's not biblical. And believers are just getting sucked in. I, am, I support restraining evil. So if an organization like Black Lives Matter, if an organization like Black Lives Matter and what it's doing in restraining evil, I think there are, there are conversations that need to be had. There's some restraint and some training that police officers need. I will support that. I support the restraining of evil. If it makes them have a, do better, they get better training, or if there are cases that they can't handle because they're more mental health and all the things that are happening, I support the restraining of evil in any capacity. And police, is, and we know not all of them are bad. We have a few of them at our church, and we love them. But they're not all righteous. There's evil men and women who wear uniform and they need to be restrained. I support that. But as an organization? Now, I'm 100% behind the phrase Black Lives Matter. But its agenda is not the hashtag. 
agenda is not the hashtag. It is a contradiction. Its agenda is way different than the hashtag. You see, the organization should have been called All Black Lives Matter, and it meant from the womb to the tomb. I think that's a fair critique of an organization that's going to rile up people to protest black people being killed, but not make the same, the same statement, the same concern about black babies being killed. I think all black lives matter is greater than Black Lives Matter. That's from the womb to the tomb. That includes officers like David Dorn, who was killed defending, retired police officer. It includes that. I agree with that. I think that's a fair critique. But what we're seeing is a different gospel. Let me lose some friends real quick. We are seeing an unprecedented reality. People marching. Okay, the rioting is over, as far as I know. The burning down stores is over. Now you're seeing peaceful protests. People singing. Kumbaya, all of that stuff. White people telling black people that they need to be woke. What's wrong with that? People are singing, marching, this is what we do. The problem is we're seeing an unprecedented view of faith in humanity, not faith in Jesus Christ. We're watching people put their trust primarily in humanity despite the church's witness. This is about faith in humanity, faith in the good of people, but my theology doesn't let me see that as a, as a fundamental reality. When Jesus said in John 6, he did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in the heart of men. When Romans 3 says all falls, a sin and fall short of the glory of God. That includes the organization. We're seeing faith in humanity, and on the outset it looks wonderful. But it's a different gospel. It has a different philosophy. This is reconciliation without restoration by Jesus. Or as I said, historically, this is reconciliation without the cross. This is justice while in many ways being unjust at the same time. This looks good on the front set because, yeah, I support the restraining of evil. But what we're trying to do, what we're seeing people try to do is put their faith in humanity to eradicate racism, to eradicate injustice, to eradicate inequality. But our Bible doesn't tell us those things will ever be eradicated until Jesus returns. So it's a false pursuit. And because it's theopolitical, because it's political, it's about loyalty. So if you disagree with any part of it, you're the problem. Now, some of us are bold enough to say, I, in every speech, every talk I've been through, they always ask, what do you think of Black Lives Matter? I said the same thing. Bang with the hashtag, not with the organization. Because their values are not 
biblical values. This is a hustle on some level. It's loyalty to the conceptual framework that they have. This is not conviction or contrition, what we're seeing. We're seeing subscription. This is you can't beat them, join them, even if you don't agree with them. This is the culture. This is the theopolitical culture we're in. Case in point. Today is June 14th. Three days ago, article in The Hill post this. Starbucks bans employees from wearing anything in support of Black Lives Matter. An internal memo sent to Starbucks employees last week specifically warned staffers against wearing accessories or clothes bearing messages in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. The memo obtained by BuzzFeed News reminds staffers that such messages are prohibited under the company's policy against accessories that advocated a political, religious, or personal issue. Numerous employees told the news outlet, however, that the company regularly allows or even encourages employees to wear pins in support of LGBTQ equality, especially during Pride Month every June. And this is a quote, Starbucks LGBTQ partners wear LGBTQ pins and shirts that also could incite and create violent experiences amongst partners and customers. One black transgender employee of the coffee chain told BuzzFeed, we have partners who experienced harassment and transphobia, homophobia for wearing their pins and shirts and Starbucks still stands behind them. Three days ago, Starbucks said, nope, we do not support you wearing Black Lives Matter pins. The next day, headline, company said previous policy was meant to create safe and welcoming environment at its locations. Starbucks has reversed its earlier policy decision that told employees not to wear clothing in support of Black Lives Matter, the American social justice movement at the forefront of protest over the alleged police killing of George Floyd. On Friday, the company unveiled a design for its own t-shirts in support of the cause its own t-shirts. So not only can you support it, they want you to wear their t-shirts. Maybe it's me. Until those arrive, it is allowing workers to wear apparel that expresses support for the movement while at work. And this is a quote. Unless, until these arrive, we heard you want to show your support, so just be you, Starbucks executives wrote in a letter to employees titled, Standing Together Against Racial Injustice. Yeah, right. You see? So one day, you cannot wear those. You can wear the LGBT stuff, but not stop this as Black Lives Matter. You get some pushback, now let's capitulate. This isn't contrition. This isn't conviction. This is subscription. I'm going to join. Can't beat them, join them, even if I don't agree with them. This is a business decision. It's forcing people to be loyal to a cause. And guess what? Based on their definitions, at some point, they're going to have to decide once they make progress in this, okay, who are the next organizations that are not loyal to our definitions of good and evil? The church. 
Where are the churches that are about inequality based on our definition? Their agenda is going to ask for more than what the Bible says we can give. In response to that, I have my all lives matter friends. As soon as you see Black Lives Matter, some of you, all lives matter. And it sounds good because all lives matter. But if all lives matter, then that means black lives matter. But we want to make sure that you know that, no, it's not black lives matter, all lives matter. However, in October, I have yet to see anyone during the breast month in October when there's marches, there's pink ribbons everywhere. I've yet to see signs that say all cancer matters. Breast cancer is the number one killer in America. Lung cancer is right behind that. I've never seen someone say, all cancer matters. So to my all lives matters, brothers, when someone puts up blue lives matter, do you say, no, 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 all lives matter? So if all lives matter, to my all lives matter friends, do you protest about the victims of sex trafficking that happened during the national convention parties of the politicians you vote for? To my All Lives Matter friends, were you outraged over Hispanic immigrants being imprisoned? Did you pray for them? And if possible, if you were in an area, were you, were you willing to bring them food or, or to try to get to know them and hear their stories? Because all lives matter, right? To my all lives matter friends, do you go and help the homeless in your cities, providing food, haircuts, toiletries, and in some cases money, maybe even a place to stay? Because all lives matter. To my all lives matter friends, do you even know where the red light district is in your city? And do you ever go there and just pray, God, save souls? To my All Lives Matter friends, do you have prisons in your area that you go to and try to lead Bible studies and help men who have, and women who have fallen and being, being rightly, sometimes rightly, punished for their sins so that when they come out, they have a different foundation? To my All Lives Matter friends, how many abortions have you had? This is theopolitical. Many people that say All Lives Matter say it because people are saying Black Lives Matter, and that's what you have a problem with. That's not biblical. That's not loving your neighbor as yourself. What does it bother you if someone says black lives matter? The only reason why it bothers you is because it's political. It's the left. I don't want anyone to think this. I, I, I got friends on Facebook who do nothing but post and try to convince you don't fall into the left's narrative. As if God isn't sovereign over the left and the narrative that they're pushing. You know, many people need to take the V out of that phrase and make it all lives matter. Now, black lives matter is not my movement. I don't believe it. But all lives matter, 
is mainly just pushback because many of you don't mean it. It's a political phrase to push back against what you perceive as a left agenda statement. It's a theological gospel. It's not biblical. And by giving so much attention to this, many are slowly departing from the faith. You may not see it now, but your anger, your frustration, your sinful judgment. What fruit of the spirit is that? What gospel do your actions say you really believe? The theological gospel is a gospel of fear of man, not a fear of God. It's a fear of man gospel. And many people just are afraid to not do it, so they follow suit. What do you think is going to happen when a church is in their crosshairs? The theological gospel's ethic is loyalty, but the biblical gospel's ethic is love. It's love. If you really want to examine the genuineness of your faith, then see, where's the love? Why is love so complicated? Our ethic is not loyalty to a political party. This isn't about who you vote for. I don't care who anybody votes for. Our ethic is love, but we have to be honest. Some of us are more loyal to a political party than we are to loving our neighbors. And the Lord is watching. Sons and daughters of the Most High King. We live in the world, but not of it. It is hard. This is a tough time. Not just for our church. I'm talking to pastors and Christians in different parts of the country. It is hard, hard, hard. But God is here, here, here. And he has not allowed us to be here during this time so that we can just not handle it and just crumble. Insert your name at the beginning of verse 20. And hear again these words from our Lord and Savior through, through Paul's writing. Guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoiding irreverent and empty speech and contradiction from what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some people have departed from the faith. Grace be with you all. Hashtag stay balanced. Father, I just pray and 
pray and ask that you would help us. For I know I failed. I confess to you I failed and given in to irreverent babble, irreverent talk, foolish talk. While I am grateful to you that I am not, personally am not, I don't idolize a political party. It's not one of the struggles that I have. But I'm susceptible to everything that I've said today, and I've done everything I've said today. I thank you for your grace that you are opening eyes. You are using this to help us. But we need to be tethered to your word. Many of us want to do something, and sometimes that means not what you said do. Or we want to do something, but not in the attitude that you said have. Father, I pray today and then next week as we get, as we double down in the part two of this, this message. I pray that you would help us to resist the theopolitical, this theolitical gospel. and to embrace the biblical gospel. I pray that the conviction would be right. There may be some who don't struggle with this, and Lord, don't, don't let the enemy condemn people who, don't need, who need to be convicted, and don't let the enemy convict people who are not striving to do this. But there is a struggle, there is a spirit of the age that we're seeing in our nation. And it's easy for us to get swept away by it, just like it was for those closest to when you had Paul write that letter. They were able to depart from the faith. Lord, that process is happening to a lot of people, but it's starting with our attitudes and our emotions and our loyalty. Lord, give us grace. Give us mercy not because we deserve it, but because you said if we believe in Jesus, you said we can have it. In your name we pray. Amen.